Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I invite the rest of us to open our copies of the scriptures to the gospel according to John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 through verse 22. Would you stand with me as I read God's word out of reverence and respect? John 2. Verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, may your word be sweeter to us than the drippings of the honeycomb, more precious to us than metal that is refined by the fire. May we desire it above all else. May we find our delight in it. Even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. What is at the center of your life? Like the hub of a bicycle wheel to which all the spokes are attached. What is that one thing that if that were taken away, everything would fall apart? Life as you know it would come undone. So I ask again, what is the center of your life? 
and maybe to probe even deeper what is really at the center of your life. Is it a spouse or a child? Is it something material, a house, a bank account, a retirement fund? Is it something ideal? My life revolves around trying to make sure everything in this life goes exactly how I want it to go. Life centers on maybe what you control and seeking to ensure that you have a good life. What is at the center of your life shapes you, it controls you, it dominates your thoughts, it dictates your decisions. What is at the center determines the overall direction and purpose of your life. It overwhelms your affections. It's that of which we would say, I can't live without it. For us in our day and age, this idea of what is at the center of our lives or what should be at the center of our lives is very privatized and individualized. What do you want to be at the center of your life? It's your choice. Whatever you want to be at the center of your life is good for you and no one can tell you otherwise. At least that's what the world tells us. It's not always been this individualized, however. Take those with, about whom we read about in this text this morning. Collectively, as a people, what did the life of the Jews in Jesus' day center around? What was it that shaped their lives collectively? What a contrary way to our thinking now. To, to ask that question, what is it that shapes our lives collectively? So together, all of us together, what would we say shapes our lives? What would we say is at the center of our life together as a people? When was the last time you thought like that? When was the last time that that was the concern of your life. Sure, the concern of my life individually, myself, what's at the center of my life? Okay, yeah, I think about that maybe all the time. What's at the life, what's at the center of, of our life collectively as a people, as a group? I would venture to say we don't think about that very often or are really that concerned about it. What was it, though, for the Jews that they would say, we cannot live without this. If you take this away, our lives will be undone. For them, it was the temple in Jerusalem. This temple that was first built by King Solomon, only to be destroyed by the Babylonians before it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. Finally, it goes this it goes through this major remodel under Herod the Great that he started about in 20 or 19 B.C. The Jews would have had a hard time imagining what life would look like without a temple. It is where the presence of God dwelt among his people on earth. 
It's where you would go to sacrifice and ensure that you were in right relationship with God. It is where you would go to offer right worship to God. Jews were required three times a year to appear at the temple in Jerusalem to worship God at the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And if you were to read God's Word, the temple is a major theme throughout the Bible, from beginning to end. It's even been said by some to communicate the mission of God in this world. So what is the mission of God in this world? It is to dwell among His people. It only makes sense then that the theme of the temple comes to us toward the beginning of John's gospel because it has a central place in all of God's word and because of the central place that it held in the hearts of many, many, even to many whom John might have been writing. Most likely, John is writing this account after 70 A.D., 70 A.D., the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed and leveled the temple. So this question could have been fresh in even the readers' minds during John's day. How are they going to live without the temple? How would their lives be shaped without the temple at the center of their lives? And as we read these verses this morning, we must begin by hearing them in the echo of John 1, 9, and 11. What did John 1, 9 through 11 say? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here is the very public act that Jesus takes in going up to Jerusalem. And immediately... He enters the temple during the time of the Passover. This is the hub of all activity in Jerusalem. The hub of all the activity in the land. Jesus goes there. He goes to his own. Out in the open, in public, he enters the temple as the light which enlightens everyone. Yet the world did not know him, and not even those whom he, he is among, his people, they do not receive him. And while we hear these verses in our minds, there's also an immediate context we must remember. Jesus has just done something else, hasn't he? He just transformed water into wine. He is the well that provides this good wine, this new wine of the messianic, messianic age. And now comes this question, okay? Jesus, you give the new wine, the good wine, what do you do with new wine and good wine? Well, if you have your Bibles, just flip back to Matthew for a second. Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. But the question is, what do you do with new wine? Jesus has just turned the water into good wine, new wine in this sense. Matthew 9, 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. 
hmm, interesting, okay. So what do you think is going to happen with this new wine that Jesus gives? Well, guess what? You're not going to put it in old wineskins because it's going to destroy those old wineskins. The old wineskins aren't made for new wine. You have to put new wine into new wineskins. How does this context inform what we're reading here with Jesus cleansing the temple? You can't put the new wine of Jesus into this old Judaism. It doesn't work. That is over. It's done away with. It's dead. Trying to reconcile Jesus the Messiah with old Judaism and make them work together doesn't work. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. He is the one to whom all of those things pointed and while we might rejoice at such a statement, it also brings with it tension. If the building of the temple can't be at the center of my life, what can? And it makes us rethink what is at the center of our lives. What is it that we would say we can't live without it? Well, what does Jesus do in these verses? Two actions that he takes. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, Jesus cleared the temple to restore right worship. Jesus cleared the temple to restore right worship. It's the time of the Feast of Passover for the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is both higher in elevation, so you go up to it. It's also the capital. You go up to the capital. Let us remember that Jews from all over would be traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. So this is the main area of activity. It's all revolving around the temple. This is where the people would go to pay their temple tax. It was where they would go to make their sacrifices for Passover. Everybody was at the temple. And so this is where Jesus goes. And what does he find? He finds the place of worship has been displaced by a place of business, a place of commerce, a place of buying and selling. Where there should have been expressions of reverence and prayer, these all had now been exchanged for the sound and the stench of animals. There were those sitting behind tables exchanging money of the people into money designated for the proper temple tax. And what does Jesus do when he sees all of this? He sees these things taking place, when he sees this business being done in the temple. Ah, very ingenious, Jews, of how you're facilitating worship. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't ignore it. Turn a blind eye to it. He can't pretend that if, as if what they're doing is okay. He can't pour his new wine into the old wineskins. So what he does might shock us. He makes a whip out of cords. He drives out the sheep, the oxen, along with those who are selling them. He overturns the tables 
where the money changers are sitting, and he scatters their coins upon the ground. This isn't the mild Jesus that's often depicted for us in children's storybooks. This is a passioned Jesus. This is a rightly and appropriately forceful, determined, and resolved Jesus. This is a Jesus without compromise. This is Jesus devoted to the pure and true worship of God, and nothing less will do. I bet this isn't the event that we think about when people say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Hmm, well in this case, Jesus would make a whip and drive people out of the temple. I wonder if we did that today, not too many people would call us Christ-like. When Jesus cleared the temple in that moment, as throughout his whole entire life, he was doing it without sin. In clearing the temple, he did not sin. Every action was obedient to his Father's will. Everything done in complete righteousness and Perfection. When he cleared the temple, he was living the perfect life in that moment as in every moment. Why did he do this though? Why did he drive all of these out of the temple? Well, it's an indication of the corrupt nature of the present system that was in place. Jesus is saying this old system that you've put in place is corrupt. It's no good. It will not do. And so Jesus, by clearing the temple, is enacting a living parable. Such disobedience to the living God, such corruption, had infiltrated into the system, and that was not without consequence. The old will be done away with. The old-style Judaism that was epitomized by the corrupt practices taking place in the temple in Jesus' day will be done away with because Jesus was committed to restoring right worship. He recognized that his father's house had been turned into a house of trade, a house dominated by man-centered business rather than being a house under the dominion of the Holy God, the Almighty, who is worthy of all worship and praise. They had jettisoned God's authority for their own authority. What was happening in the temple was not encouraging worship. It was not eliciting greater worship, more pure worship. It was not enhancing worship. It was actually antithetical to worship. Think about it for a moment. Why was all of this happening? Think, people were coming from all over the land. And they were supposed to offer sacrifices there at the temple. Maybe like we would do sometimes, we would say, we're not going to bring our sacrifice with us. We'll just get our sacrifice when we get there, right? Right? Like maybe you do that with like food, like 
We're not going to bring our food with us. We'll just find something to eat like when we get there. Same kind of thing for these Jews. Well, we're not going to we're not going to walk our little lamb with us all the way across the land of Israel until we get to Jerusalem and then sacrifice it. We'll just buy the lamb when we get there. Maybe we would even say, how ingenious. This maybe was facilitating worship, right? Maybe easier for those people to worship. They didn't have to bring their sacrifice. They could just buy it when they got there. They would, they would change your money for you right there. The, the temple tax required you uh, to pay half of a coin of silver. So they were changing their, their money into these silver coins, usually one silver coin for two people. How thoughtful, how convenient. How conducive to worship, right? But it wasn't conducive to worship. It was destroying the true and right worship of God. The very reason why man has been created was being denied to people through these actions. Because they were man-centered, because they were all about business and trade and commerce. Jesus did not prize human resourcefulness in the temple. He prized right public worship in the temple. And these things that were going on were not conducive to right public worship. How often do we exchange right public worship for what we hold to be our right personal preferences. It does not matter if God is worshipped. Rather, are things happening the way I want them to happen? Are my needs being met? Are they focused on me? Do these things facilitate my worship? Wasn't that happening in the temple? These thought that they were facilitating worship? Have you come here this morning looking to buy a sheep? Have you come here wanting to exchange your money to pay the temple tax? Now, not literally, but rather, what do you think it will take to make you acceptable in God's sight. Is it the things that facilitate worship? Is it the things that you do? Or is it someone who is at the center of your life? Jesus cleared the temple. His disciples remembered this saying, this quote from the Old Testament. This is from Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David written in the context of a righteous sufferer who is bearing the reproach of his enemies and the enemies of God. 
It's in this context that Psalm 69 is written. And notice these disciples are reading these psalms Christocentrically, right? So they're reading Psalm 69 like, like it's Jesus singing that song and that it's speaking of him. And that Jesus here is one who is zealous or who is jealous. Why? Why is Jesus zealous for the house of his father? Why is Jesus zealous for the house of God? Because ultimately, being concerned with the house of God is being concerned about the household of God, the people of God. Jesus was the one who was consumed with passion for God's glory and driven by a desire to remove from his people any obstacles to proper worship. This was, after all, is the mission of the Messiah. He has come to remove obstacles of worship. He's come to take them away. How often do we try to put those obstacles back up. But remember what I said. The mission of the Messiah is to remove these obstacles, to restore proper worship. And we can see this. Go back in your Bibles to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. End of the Old Testament. Or, yeah, sorry. End of the Old Testament. Zechariah 14. Right before the last book of Malachi. Zechariah 14, verse 21. The last verse. And every pond in Jerusalem and Judah will be, shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. Now look at this last sentence. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. What had Jesus done when he came into the temple? He got the traitors out. He even said, you've made my father's house a house of what? A house of trade. You've made it a marketplace. When the Messiah comes, there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That's what the Messiah will do. That is what Jesus is doing. Now look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. Just over a page or so in your Bible. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What did this one who came do? Jesus, he went into the temple, didn't he? And then verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What is he doing? He's refining. He's purifying. So that right worship is happening. Jesus was jealous, zealous to do this, zealous for his Father's name, zealous for right worship. It says here, look at this, zeal for your house will consume me. The idea, the word picture is it will eat me up. That's the idea of consume, like eating, consume something. 
zeal for your house will consume me. How much did this zealousness for right worship consume Jesus? It consumed him so much that it consumed him to death. Which brings us to his second action. Jesus replaced the temple to revolutionize right worship. Jesus replaced the temple to revolutionize right worship. Have you ever said to someone, how could you have missed it? It was so obvious. Maybe we could say that to the Jews and particularly to the Jewish establishment that Jesus challenges at the very beginning of his ministry. The Jews demonstrate their misunderstanding of Jesus' actions and words by the question that they ask. They ask this, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, on what authority do you clear the temple of God? Do you understand what Jesus had just done? He had just cleared the temple of God. Who has the right to do that? When Jesus clears the temple, he is claiming to have authority over the temple. He is claiming to have authority over Jerusalem. In more than that, he is also claiming to have authority over all of Israel and all of God's people. When Jesus clears the temple, it's a proclamation of his lordship. And now the Jews come to him and say, Jesus, don't you think you've overreached a little bit? How do you have this kind of vast authority and sovereignty which you are claiming to have by your actions? But there is irony here, isn't there, in this question they asked. They want a sign. They want something that will point beyond itself to a greater reality, some, something powerful, something miraculous. But Jesus had just given them a sign and they missed it. They missed it because they did not have the eyes of faith to see it. So Jesus answers them in an equally ironic way. Some call his answer an ironic imperative. What is the imperative? Destroy this temple. We could say it this way. You destroy this temple. That's the imperative. Destroy this temple. The implication is directed toward the Jews. Jews, Jewish establishment, Jewish authorities, you destroy this temple. How would they react to that? No, 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 no. We would never do that. We have an allegiance to this temple. This is our temple. Our lives center around this temple. Destroy this temple? No, no, no. We would never, never do that. In fact, we consider that almost impossible. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. It's been fortified. It's been strengthened. You can't destroy this temple. It's almost impossible. They saw themselves as advocates for the temple. They would have died for the temple. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? 
destroy this temple, you destroy this temple, and in three days, what? I will raise it up. That's even more impossible. Not, not only do they think this temple is indestructible, but if it was destroyed, it would not take three days to rebuild it. But Jesus was not talking about brick and mortar. He was talking about the temple of his body. This is the commentary that John gives us, isn't it? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The holy place is to be displaced by a new reality, a rebuilt temple, which John refers to as the temple of Jesus' body. Christ is the temple that all earlier temples Look forward to and anticipate. Remember the glory that filled the tabernacle after it was constructed? Remember the glory that filled the temple after it was constructed? And now John comes to us and says, We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the new temple where God's glory is manifested and displayed for everyone to see. Jesus embodied in himself the meaning of the temple, of everything that it had previously signified. Jesus is the epitome of God's presence on earth as God incarnate. Where Christ is, there God is dwelling. The mission of God is the mission of Jesus Christ. The need for renewal of the Jerusalem sanctuary gives way to the expectation of its replacement. Jesus' agenda was not mere reform. It was nothing less than revolution. With Jesus, a new center of worship arose. Jesus is the new and true center of worship for his new messianic community. That's us. Jesus is the center of everything. And remember when this is happening? Don't forget the context. The first two words, the, the Passover. The Passover. Do we ever ask ourselves why? Like, why did John put that in there? Like, why was that important? In fact, as we read through John, we're going to see him do this a few more times. He'll talk about the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. Why is that important for us? Is it just so that we know it was, like, busy around the temple? I think it's more than that. Jesus institutes a new Passover with himself rather than the temple as its focus. He is the Passover lamb. He is the bread from heaven. He is the one leading his people out of the imprisonment of sin and death into forgiveness and new life. All of this is established through his death and resurrection. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Let me tell you what you're committed to. This is what Jesus says to the Jews. You are committed to death and destruction. 
I am committed to life, eternal life, everlasting life, forgiven life, new life. And I will demonstrate that by raising myself from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is Trinitarian in nature. God raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. And God the Son, Jesus himself, raised himself from the dead. Do you see that here? I will raise it up. I am the resurrection and the life. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection that we get new creation. The Old Testament temple symbolizes the entire creation and points forward to new creation. And this is important. The purpose of the Old Testament temple all along was to point symbolically toward a time when God's special revelatory presence in the temple would break out of the Holy of Holies and fill the entire new creation as His cosmic temple. The glory of God was never meant just to stay in the temple. The glory of God was meant to break out and cover the globe. It was meant to break out and be everywhere in a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever and ever. Christ is God's tabernacling presence in the new creation. Where does this leave us then? It revolutionizes worship as such that Christ is now the center, both individually and collectively for us. What is it that shapes our life as Christ's people? What is it that shapes our life as Christ's church? It's Him. Our life revolves around Him. And we are those who now say, how can I live without the true temple, the new temple, Jesus Christ, my risen Lord? Look at how God has provided the way of right worship and right relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the exclusive way, the only way to God, and he is worthy of our worship, for he has purified us to serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ is the new, the true temple. The one whom our lives revolve around. The one who shapes our lives. The one whom we live for. Let our worship be right worship. Let our worship be pleasing to you. Let us not be resting on what we do to think that somehow that makes us acceptable in your sight, but that it is 
Jesus Christ and him alone that makes us acceptable in your sight. Renew our minds according to this truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.